0: All right, in our series in the book of John, this is part eight, and uh, it might take us two or three years to get all the way through John, that's okay. Uh, he's got as much time as we do. John chapter two, let's read from verse one, I've got the NIV. This is the, this is the account of when Jesus is invited to a wedding and turns water into wine. It's the favorite story of unsaved people. If Jesus can turn water to wine, I want to follow that guy. Let's read. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, that's not a harsh way of talking to your mom. It's probably better translated, dear lady, why? Why now? (laughs) Okay, so don't, re- don't misunderstand that. Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. After this, He went down to Capernaum with His mother and brothers and His disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is such a cool story. Jesus invited to a wedding, and it's Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Almighty, Jesus, the most important human that ever lived was invited to a wedding. The one who would save the world, the one who created the world, the one who had a new kingdom to bring on earth. Very important stuff to do. And we find him invited to a wedding. You know what that says to me? Is that God approves of us celebrating normal life events. It's okay to go to weddings. It's okay to have a party. It's okay to celebrate and have fun. Jesus gives validity to having a good time. Does that make sense? And it might be a a silly sounding point, but there there are some in the church, I speak broadly of the church, not judging them, but some who say, actually, no, Christianity, our faith, it's all about being serious, with a capital C. That's what my dad says. (laughs) I never got that as a child. Anyway. It's about praying and reading the Bible and going to church and going on outreach. But I think Jesus gives validity to our humanity. And it's okay to have a party every now and then and have a good time, right? I don't think it's good if you're always having parties and you never have time to read the Bible and pray and come to church. And if you go out late on a Saturday night and you're too tired to come to church on a Sunday, that's a bad thing, all right? So be wise in how you celebrate. But, But God approves of us enjoying being human and having a good time. I think I've got 10 points today. That's number one. Number two, perhaps controversially, we'll see, Jesus is okay with drinking alcohol. Some shaking of heads. I guess I'm going to get some discussions afterwards. So, the type of wine that was mentioned here, the the wedding wine, was a sweet wine. It was usually diluted two or three parts of water to one part of wine, so it wasn't a heavy wine, it wasn't strong, and the aim of drinking the wine wasn't to get drunk. The aim was to enjoy the wine and enjoy the festivities, right? There There are some amongst the Christian faith who would say, no, you can't drink wine, Christians shouldn't drink any alcohol, right? On the other side, some Christians drink too much alcohol, and each side, I mean, it's a spectrum, right? Each side, sorry, I've got one hand, I'm a one-armed bandit at the moment, each side kind of judge the other and throw accusations at the other, and I don't think either of them are right. If you look in the Bible, there's no clear instructional command forbidding drinking alcohol. There are plenty of instructions, Old Testament, New Testament, about getting drunk, and that it's a sin to drink too much, right? Jesus was at this wedding. He would have been at other celebrations. It's logical to assume that He also would have drunk wine. Well, you know, they couldn't store their grape juice in fridges. They didn't have fridges, and so they fermented it, and the alcohol helped to keep the wine, the juice, right? So it's pretty logical that Jesus would have drunk wine. Paul, the apostle, he writes to Timothy, who's a pastor, and he says, Timothy, I know you've got some health challenges. You've got a weak stomach, so take some wine for your weak stomach. Paul's saying to a pastor, drink some wine if you need to. Not because of the sheep, because of health matters. (laughs) Not because of his flock who were maybe wondering. And so I think drinking alcohol falls into a category of topics that you could call disputable matters. You could debate about them, you could argue about them, but in the Bible, it doesn't say you shouldn't drink alcohol, and it doesn't say that you must drink alcohol either. It seems like they drank alcohol, but you mustn't get drunk. Some parts of our faith we contend for, we don't let go of, right? Being saved by faith in Jesus, not by works, by His grace. And so if you come up to me often and say, Glendon, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, But the basis of my acceptance before God is how good I am, how nice I am, how kind I am, how many good things I am. And because of that, God accepts me. I'm going to have a very serious argument with you because that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm not going to dispute about that. I'm going to tell you that's wrong, right? Very kindly, right? But there are some things in our faith that we can differ and disagree on. The Bible isn't like super clear. You have a glass of wine every now and then. Or if you choose not to drink, I'm not going to take it up with you because I believe it's a disputable matter. And our convictions on these things can be different. Paul spends a whole chapter, Romans chapter 14, dealing with this topic of disputable matters. If I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but go and read it if you're curious. He talks about different ones. Some who eat meat and some who choose not to eat meat. Who here is a vegetarian? You choose not to eat meat. For whatever reason, no judging, just curious. Wow, okay. If you're too shy, that's great. We won't judge you for that. And he says some people eat meat and some people don't eat meat. Some people celebrate special days or holidays to other people. Every day is alike, Paul says. And he's saying, well, you can have different opinions and views and convictions on these things. And then he says, don't blow it out of proportion. Don't take a trivial matter like eating and drinking and make a big deal of it. This is what he says, Romans 14 verse 17. He says, the kingdom of God is not all about eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, if if you're vegan and you firmly believe that we shouldn't eat meat, Paul says that's fine. No problem, but don't go campaigning on the street corners and make it a bigger deal than God's kingdom. (laughs) And if you do eat meat, you know, uh, Acts chapter 10, when Peter saw the sheet coming down and all the animals, and the Bible says we should eat all kinds of meat, and you go and try and convert all the the lacto-vegetarians or whatever other vegetarians and vegans they are, the Bible says you can eat meat, and you make a bigger deal of it of the gospel. Paul says, why? You're getting confused with the importance of these things. They disputable matters. Some people say, Well, I want to I go back to my Jewish roots, and I'm not going to eat pork because if you're Jewish, you're closer to God. And I don't know if that's true or not. And that's fine if that's your conviction. But that's not true for everyone. Because our convictions can be different. Listen to what Paul says at the end of, near the end of that chapter, verse 22, And this is such a, for me, so helpful. And being so liberating. He says, "So whatever you believe about these disputable matters, keep between yourself and God. <laughs> Your faith, share it. But these disputable things that, that you might have differences on, actually, that's between you and God, right? In other words, we mustn't put our conviction about disputable matters onto other people, okay? Because it's their relationship with God. And our convictions, they can not only differ, but they can change. God might say to you, "Ha, now it's the time to eat bacon. (laughs) God's never told me not to eat bacon, (laughs) just saying. But, But I know a very good friend of mine, he's been following Jesus for like 48, 49 years now. God told them at the beginning of this year, don't drink any alcohol. And he drinks like one or two a week, max. Like he doesn't drink very much at all. And it's only at home with his wife does he drink. But God said to him this year, no, no alcohol. And so he's getting. my conviction has changed. Not wrong for anyone else, but for me, what God said to me about this thing for this year, actually, I'm choosing not to drink. He's not sharing that or forcing other people to follow his convictions. So our convictions can change. And so it's important if you don't have a conviction, you might have an idea or an opinion or what someone else says or a blog you've read, go before God and get a conviction. How do you do that? Go and read the scriptures that talk about that topic. Go and pray to God and ask Him, Lord, what are you telling me about this thing at this season? Because He might tell you something different in three years' time. But get a conviction from God and whatever it is, don't judge others. Just keep it between yourself and God. For some people, maturity in their faith is being able to have a drink and not feel guilty and not drink too much and not get drunk and not feel ashamed of it. They're able to, they've matured in their faith, they have self-control. They just have one drink with their meal. That, that's maturity, what it looks like for some people. For other people, maturity looks like not having a drink at all ever. So maturity growing in our faith, you can't even say, oh, maturity, this is the end goal for this thing. I don't know. Even maturity in disputable matters looks different. So let's not judge each other, but let's get a conviction, whatever that conviction is. Amen? Number three. So, so Jesus is at the wedding, and this big problem crops up at the wedding. They run out of wine. Now, that's a big problem because this is a small community, and it's socially closely knit, and so everyone's going to remember this terrible incident where there was not enough hospitality at this big life celebration, the wedding of this couple. They would have been embarrassed, the couple and the families, for years, maybe decades, because no one's going to forget this was a big problem that had cropped up during the wedding. And Mary, Jesus' mother, I don't know if she's connected to the family somehow, we don't know, but she seems to know. Not everyone knows, but she seems to know there's this big problem. And she knows who might be able to solve the problem. It's her son, Jesus. And so she goes to Jesus and makes a very bold statement. It's, it's kind of suggestive, right? Jesus, they've got no more wine. Okay, so it's not a question She's not telling him what to do. She's not asking anything specific. She's just laying this problem before Jesus and saying, there's no more wine. All right? She knows that Jesus has just been baptized. John the baptizer has called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She knows what the angels said about Jesus before he was born. So maybe she's thinking, ah, he's been baptized. He's starting his ministry. Maybe it's his time to enter center stage. Maybe it's His time to be revealed as the unique Son of God. And I think she was partly right, but I think she was partly wrong, because Jesus kind of corrects her, and He says, my hour, my time has not yet come of full revelation that He would die on the cross for the salvation of mankind. And so she doesn't tell Him how to reveal Himself, how to be the Savior of the world. She just presents this request she trusts him enough to tell the servants, just go and do whatever he says. And we, two things, we must realize that Jesus is the one who can intervene if we have a problem. But that we mustn't tell him how to intervene. We can't tell God what to do. I don't know if it's like this for you, but I often when I pray, I kind of catch myself and I find myself realizing, oh, Glendon, you're trying to be God, And tell God how to take care of your problems. (laughs) We, We kind of want to tell God what to do, don't we? And actually what Mary does is so helpful. She just says, they've got no more wine. Here is this problem. I don't know how to fix this. Jesus, can you maybe do something, right? She doesn't tell him what to do or how to do it. We must try not to do that either. Often we would, when we're praying about something, we... We have a particular idea. It would be great if God resolved it like this, X, Y, and Z. So we pray like that, right? But we must be careful. I don't think that's wrong to pray like that. We must be careful of trying to tell God what He should do. I think He knows a whole lot better. So let's let God be God. Let us be His servants and do whatever He tells us to do. Amen? Amen? We have to be those servants who believe that Jesus can intervene. In a particular situation. Number next. Oh, I didn't number my points here. I think it's number four. Jesus, I believe, can be persuaded. Jesus doesn't automatically change the water to wine. It wasn't like, okay, 9 p.m. came, the wine ran out, Jesus got a reminder on His cell phone, okay, time to do a miracle, and then He... He didn't, it didn't just happen automatically. Mary came to Jesus with a problem. Jesus probably didn't even know there was a problem. Mary's request, Mary's boldness maybe persuaded Jesus. Though it wasn't maybe the time what he was thinking of, yet he did something about it. There are times if you read the Gospels where Jesus just sovereignly, um, unprompted, completely, graciously does a miracle. The person's not expecting it. They don't even know who God is. Jesus stops by, heals them, right? You get those moments where there's no request from the person who needs their problem sorted out. But often, maybe as much as half of the times in the gospel, someone has come to Jesus with faith, with desperation possibly, with persistence. And it's caused Jesus to stop in his tracks, engage with them, and bring his kingdom onto earth in that moment, to bring heaven down. It's like Jesus can be persuaded. He was going somewhere, and then someone shouts at him from the side of the road, and he changes track. Think of the the, um, the two blind men in Matthew, it's Matthew 18. Jesus and the crowd are walking somewhere and they shout out, these two blind men, they hear a commotion, maybe someone says it's Jesus, they can't see where he is, they're blind, but they shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd are like, no, he's going somewhere important. And they shout louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stops turns around, goes to them, what do you want me to do? Lord, we want to receive our sight. Think of the woman with the issue of blood, bleeding for 12 years. She has enough faith to press through the crowd and say, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, no one sees her. She doesn't even talk to Jesus before it happens, but she somehow reaches out, lays hold of his cloak, and she's healed. She's healed. Matthew chapter 15. This for me is a challenging text. There's a Jesus and his disciples are in Canaan, the enemies of the Jews, and a Canaanite woman comes to the disciples and asks them to heal her daughter, who's sick, I think. And they say, No, go away. (laughs) But she keeps pestering them, and she doesn't listen to them when they say, Go away. Now, I told you, go away, Jesus is busy. I'll get a bit more tape for this. Uh... Eventually, the disciples go to Jesus and they say, this woman is pestering us. Can you tell her to get lost? Matthew chapter 15. To which she keeps pleading, my daughter's sick. So Jesus says this, I wasn't sent to your people group, I'm paraphrasing, I wasn't sent to Canaan, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He's kind of saying, hey, I'm not here for you guys, I'm here for the Jews, right? Most of us would have turned around, walked off, but this lady keeps asking. So Jesus says again, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. It's quite derogatory, hey, right? At that point, the rest of us would have walked away. You know what this woman does? She says this, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus is so surprised by her faith and by her boldness that he heals her daughter without even laying a hand on her. Friends, I think Jesus can be persuaded by our boldness, our persistence, our faith, Yes, He's divine, He's sovereign, He works outside of time and space. But over and over again in the Gospels we see, Jesus is stopped in His tracks by people who seek Him and pursue Him and run after Him. Number five, we see in this miracle, Jesus' supreme power. It doesn't seem like He goes and lays hands on the pots doesn't seem like he prays for these jars of water. He didn't command the spirit of boringness of water to leave. He didn't cast a demon out of the water. It seems, it seems like it was a sheer act of his will. This water was just transformed into wine. There are other occasions in the Bible where Bad water was sorted out by prophets. Moses, there was some bitter water. God said to him, throw some of these particular sticks in, and the bitter water became drinkable. Elisha purged one of the springs by throwing salt into it. But Jesus didn't need to add anything to the water. They filled it up to the brim. There's no room for anything. It was just his power at work in this water. And he could have done it any number of ways, but he uses what he had at his disposal, These empty jars, the servants who went and filled them, et cetera, et cetera, just shows His divine power. Number next, we see the obedience and the faith of the servants. The servants obeyed Him. They went and they filled these water jars. They would have had buckets. I don't know where they got the water from. It might have taken 20 minutes. And they're thinking all along, what is going to happen? The next bucket they poured it, it's halfway. What is gonna happen? This is a weird wedding. And they fill it up. And Jesus says, Now take some water and go and give it to the big shot, the master of ceremonies, the banquet, the guy who's running the show. And they're probably thinking, Oh boy, I poured this stuff in there. It's it's clear, it's water. That's not wine. And now I'm gonna take this water to the Numzan. I'm, this is my last day. I'm gonna get fired for bringing water to the sky. But they obey, and they had to have faith. See, the master of the banquet didn't know what was in the cup. He just assumed, well, they're bringing me the next wine. So he, just, he judged the taste and the flavor based on, well, this is obviously wine coming. But the servants did know. And boy, they must have been shaking in their boots. They had faith that at some point in the process, this thing would have changed. And it did. That's amazing faith. I'm not sure I could have done that. We see, seventhly, the kindness and the generosity of God. Six water, six big water jars, each holding 20, 25 gallons. It's about 500, 600 liters of wine. That's a lot for the end of the evening, right? And you're still going to dilute it two or three times. Like 600 liters is a lot of wine. You know what would have likely happened the next day? They're cleaning up the venue, and there's hundreds of liters left over. They likely would have sold the wine, this newlywed couple. They would have had some money to start their new life. How cool is that? And it would have been extra evidence of the miracle because, you know, when you've had a bit to drink and someone (laughs) brings you the next wine, you're like, wow, this is way better than the last wine. But the wine still would have been there the next day. Ah, we didn't just imagine that Jesus did a miracle. Here's the evidence still, hundreds of liters. It's like God's generosity, God's kindness to this couple. Number eight, is a statement from the, the master. He says, You've kept the best to last. And I think that's a great principle for us who are part of God's kingdom: that the best is still to come. God is Working on us still. The Bible says we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The longer we follow Christ, the better we, the more like Christ we become. And My wife is so grateful for that. That I'm becoming more like Jesus. <laughs> I look at my kids and I think, thank God. He's still got decades to work in them. <laughs> Seriously though. The best is yet to come. And one day, when we are promoted to heaven, or God wraps up planet Earth and He makes new earth and the new heavens, the bestest will be here. But we know, friends, the longer we serve God, it gets better and better and better. Number nine, John says this was a sign. Now, a sign in John's writings means a miracle that points to a deeper truth. It's pointing to something else that's deeper, a deeper meaning, a, more, um, a deeper message, if you like. And in John's gospel, these signs were performed by Jesus to bring people to faith in Him. And so the way that John records them in the book of John is for that purpose. This is what he writes in John chapter 20, in verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these the ones that he's recorded are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that believing in him or, and that by believing you may have life in his name so that's why Jesus performs these signs that we would believe in him and the disciples who already believed in him probably believed in Him a whole lot more after this miracle. And isn't it the same with us? We believe in Jesus, but then, like, we get to a difficult patch. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and then God, like, answers it. And, like, our faith gets a bit stronger. We believe in Him a bit more, if you like. It can happen over and over as God shows up, as we follow Him, as He answers prayers, as He intervenes, etc. So, so what is this particular sign pointing towards, this taking water and making it to wine. Well, some commentators say it shows the transforming power of Jesus to take one thing and make it completely different. And that's good for us because the Bible says we are made into a new creation. God transforms us entirely. We get taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. There's a transformation that happens when we believe in Jesus. Thank God for that. Right? So it can point to his transforming power. Another commentator says that this is, it's like a sign of the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And notice the detail that John puts in. He says, the ceremonial jars that were used by the Jews for washing. In other words, it's part of the the law, the covenant, the old covenant. And so they're saying that The wine is a picture of the new covenant. The water is a picture of the old. The new comes after the old. The the wine comes after the water. But the, the new, the wine, came from the water. The new covenant comes from the old covenant. Jesus didn't come to do away with it, but to fulfill it. And the old is not as good as the new. Water is not as good as wine in this cultural context. One other commentator, and this is my last point this morning, says this is what the sign could mean, turning water into wine, is that Jesus takes the ordinary and makes it special. I love that. Jesus takes water and makes it into wine. He takes the ordinary, the mundane, the average, the boring, the run of the mill in our lives. And if Jesus' transforming power is there, Even those mundane, boring things can be special. And so the servants, they didn't create the wine. All they did was fill the jars and take the water to the master. And in order for us to experience this this sweet wine, this new wine, this, this grace of God under the new covenant, there's some very ordinary things that we need to do. We can't make the new wine, but we can fill water jars. We can't change things, but we can in faith take it out the jar and take it somewhere and trust that God transforms it. And we need to do like the servants, do everything He tells us. There's an obedience required from us, but we can't change water into wine. No one can, right? But if we obey, if we fill the jars, if we do the daily I'm not going to say grind, because that's not fair. If we do the daily activities of following Christ, a Christ follower, that's what a Christian means, in obedience, then we open up the possibility for Jesus to transform that thing into something special and amazing. What are those things we have to do? Well, I think we need to start by believing that Jesus can do something about our situation. That's the first step in experiencing this new wine, this new covenant, this grace of God, His presence, whatever you want to call it. We start by believing that He can do something about our situation, and then we obey Him. We do what He says. We follow His commands. We read the Bible. We seek Him in His Word. We seek Him in prayer. We worship Him. We spend time seeking Him. We choose to try and live a life that pleases Him according to His Word not by law, not by works, not to impress them or get brownie points. See, I read three chapters today, Jesus. There's, there's no formula, right? But when we do these ordinary things in faith, it's like Jesus transforms them into something special. Only Jesus can create the wine. Our activities don't make the wine. Our activities in faith are, are like filling the jars, right? God does what only God can do. But we must fill those jars with water. Amen? I'm going to ask us to stand as I pray for us as we close this morning. I don't normally have so many points.